Hi, everyone. This is your host, Greg Myers. And this episode, episode 50, is part of our special series focused on diversity and inclusion. In this series, I will be talking with leaders in the payments industry and maybe some experts from outside of the industry about diversity and inclusion. It has been proven that a diverse workforce and a diverse management team leads to increased creativity, better decision-making, reduced employee turnover, and increased profit, as well as many other benefits that I'm sure we will be talking about. This special series is brought to you by the WNET and PaySafe. The WNET, or the Women's Network in Electronic Transactions, is celebrating 15 years of helping women achieve greater personal success, influence, and professional parity in the payments industry. WNET is a not-for-profit organization with a mission of creating a stronger and more diverse industry by empowering and investing in women. Learn how at WNETonline.org. PaySafe is a leading global specialized payment provider. They've been driving innovation in and around payments for over 20 years all over the globe for both businesses and consumers. PaySafe believes diversity and inclusion is not just a checkbox, but rather a journey in which they are fully committed to being on around the world. Learn more at PaySafe.com. I'm honored today to be joined on this fourth episode of our special series about diversity and inclusion by Joe Carella. In fact, my interview with Joe was so full of incredibly useful information that we decided to break it into two episodes. So this is the first of two with Joe Carella. The second part will be available on December 17th. Also, if you can, grab a pen and a piece of paper as there's a little exercise we do during this first episode. I promise you it'll be worth your time if you can. Joe Carella is a professor of global strategy and the assistant dean for executive education at the Eller College of Management at the University of Arizona. He has over 20 years of experience in helping executives and corporations in talent development, inclusive workplaces, managing change, strategy formulation, and execution. His academic and research engagements have seen him focus on strategic decision-making, corporate strategy, talent development, and business performance with a variety of corporate clients, including Hershey's, Chevron, Fender Music Instruments Corporation, Intel, BBVA, and Microsoft. He is also responsible for designing, developing, and delivering successful executive education programs for global corporations. Joe has been a contributor to Money 2020, a keynote speaker on the state of the industry at the annual Congress of the Forum of European Technology Professionals, the Society for Plastics Industry, the Association for Talent Development, and Disrupt HR. Joe has been a contributor to Harvard Business Review, focusing on the challenges of leadership. Joe's specialties include organizational change, talent development, diversity, business strategy, innovation, business intelligence, facilitation, coaching, leadership development, executive education, and global business. As I previously mentioned, this is part one of my interview with Joe Carella. I know you're really going to enjoy this episode, so let's get started. Hi, Joe. Thank you for being here, and welcome to this special series of the Leaders in Payments podcast focused on diversity and inclusion. Thanks so much for being on today. Hey, Greg. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. Great. So why don't you start by telling the audience a little bit about yourself, maybe where you grew up, where you went to school, where you currently live, maybe a few things like that. All right. I'm sure that most people can tell that I have an accent, so I'm not exactly from anywhere near the towns across the United States that you may think of. I grew up in a small fishing village in the south of Italy. And uh, 
I know it sounds idyllic, you know, La Dolce Vita and all of that, (laughs) but actually it was a profoundly economic depressed part of Italy that I grew up in. And I was either going to be the local family doctor like my dad or move out and do something else. So age 13, I went to English school in London and my life was forever transformed in that sense. I ended up becoming a strategy consultant and then got into academia. Four universities later in Europe, the USA and Southeast Asia, and here I am in sunny Arizona working at the University of Arizona. Okay, and what is your role there? I teach research, and I'm also the assistant dean for executive education. So I get to work with a lot of executives. I coach them, and I draw inspiration for my work, both on the research side as well as the teaching side, working with those executives. I work with executives across uh, all industries, including the financial services industry. I've been studying decision-making and implicit bias for the past 10 years, and I'm lucky I get to collaborate with research teams in Asia and Europe. So I feel like I have a little bit of a global perspective. Yeah, sounds like it. So what inspired you to start studying decision-making? Let's see. My drunken mistakes as a college student, (laughs) (laughs) I was making some really poor decisions, but more seriously, it was one of my professors that inspired me, Professor Susan Strange, the author of Casino Capitalism. I wrote my first dissertation with her on the death of the global corporation. Can global corporation dies? And what causes their death? When uh, drilling into the actual causes of collapses and bankruptcies, what became really apparent to me was that most firms, most organizations die because of poor strategic decisions and the process that goes along with that. That means, in general, the inability for senior teams to be purposeful around strategic choices that they make, how they establish sound governance, for example, how they choose the right performance indicators, how they select the right insight that informs their decision-making, and ultimately how to bias-proof their decisions. I got especially curious about implicit bias, and it seemed to me that the inability to manage our attitudes and allow for new insight to reshape our thinking was the key to poor decision-making. The more I studied at executive teams, the more I saw that implicit bias was a play and was the cause of their uh, challenges, which led me to get more and more interested in the way that they made decisions. Okay, and so how does that challenge that they have with these decision-making tie into diversity and inclusion? (laughs) Well, the easiest way to explain it to me is if I ask you to play a little game with me. Would you be open to do that? Sure. (laughs) All right. So describe an apple to me. It's round, it's red, and it tastes good. (laughs) And now a more complicated little exercise that people can do at home. And I'll uh, kind of pull those two together once we've done both, if you don't mind. Okay. So. Do you have pen and paper? Yes. All right. Write down in a column on the left-hand side 
the names of six to 10 people who you trust the most and who are not family members. Okay. Take your time. Think of people that kind of have helped you through your career or that help you today. Just think of different names. Okay, I've got six. You've got six. Awesome. Now, I'm going to ask you to, to the right-hand side of the piece of paper, I'm going to ask you to start to tick some boxes along some dimensions that I'm going to ask you to think about. Those dimensions being, for example, gender. How many are male, for example? Okay, you want me to tell you now? You can tell me if you feel comfortable doing so, or you can just observe what you've got, which is the same thing that those that are going to be listening to this podcast will be doing at home. Okay, I finished that part. Excellent. Then you may want to think about nationality, for example. How many, for example, are American versus how many are from other nationalities? Okay. Okay. All right. And we can keep doing this along a variety of dimensions from, for example, the native language, the accent, the age, the professional background, the university that they went to, if they went to university, the religion, the ethnicity. So there's a lot of different dimensions. And uh, what usually happens is that we find that those that are in our circle of trust, if we want to call that those people that I asked you to list as your circle of trust, we find that they're very similar between themselves. And in many ways, they're similar to us. So in substance, for uh, most of the people that do a test like this, and I often do it in the classroom, the people that are included in our circle of trust tend to be people who are a bit like us, if that makes sense. And uh, if I go back to the Apple (laughs) description that I asked you to give me, in most cases, what ends up happening is that what we have is a very kind of generalized description of what the apple looks like. And it's essentially our brain. Our brain likes to take shortcuts and it likes to generalize, which is a really good thing. And so when it comes to the way in which we generalize, that can be really healthy in the sense that you don't have to think too much when you're thinking of an apple. You don't have to think every time, what are the dimensions of an apple that I should be thinking about? And especially when we're working with people that we trust, we don't have to kind of come up with different dimensions every single time. We just have those that kind of we connect with and that we have affinity with. So unconscious bias is tied to diversity and inclusion because whether we like it or not, our brain likes to generalize. And in uh, doing these generalization, we end up making connections that ring true over extensive periods of time that makes us feel comfortable, that do not require us to think every time from scratch of a certain dimension that we are asked to kind of consider or observe. And so unconscious bias is tied to diversity and inclusion because our brain is fundamentally a little bit lazy. And it likes to find shortcuts. And if we trust someone that is similar to us, that makes us feel reassured, that makes us feel like we can uh, get faster to a decision, makes us feel like 
connected, understood, all of those good things. The problem is that over time, that can get in the way. And uh, it can create problems when we're facing situations that we've never faced before, where our previous experiences may not be as relevant. And I think you get the picture, right? Right. Okay. So talk for a minute about how this unconscious bias and biases that we have truly impacts our decision making. I think you talked a little bit about it, but maybe expound on it a little. Yeah, sure. The short answer is that implicit bias and conscious bias, it's called either way, impacts us in more ways than we think it's possible. I'm going to kind of drill deeper into this whole concept of the brain. The way that the brain works is that our neurons make connections between one another whenever we're confronted with something new. And what that means is that when we're experiencing something, an electric reaction takes place in our neurons and it sort of prompts our neurons to connect with one another. In doing so, over time, as we experience something more and more, the brain either activates those neurons more and so it creates a repeated response to things or, in fact, it sort of tones down the response that the neurons have. This is not something that should interest me, therefore I'm not going to react to it. So the way in which our brain makes decisions is very much based on this huge repository of experiences that we have built over time. And when we're confronted with something new, it immediately says, hey, is this something that I can relate to from what I've seen in the past, what I've experienced in the past? Or do I just need to activate my kind of more sophisticated parts of our brain, the human parts of our brain, so that I can make more complex decisions? The default position that our brain takes, you know, going back to this concept of the brain being a bit of a lazy bum, is that it rather not, <laughs> it rather kind of use experiences that it has accumulated over time than to have to think really hard because doing that consumes a lot of energy. Even though our brain is only 2% of our body weight, it consumes about 20% of energy. And when we are confronted with new situations, with things that are complex that we don't really understand, then it consumes even more energy. And so if the brain can save itself some energy, it will do so. So it likes to generalize. It likes to kind of say people like Greg, for example, are all a certain type and people like Joe are a certain type. So it likes to do that. That's why in the context of diversity and inclusion, unconscious bias plays a role because we like to go back to the experiences that we had and we like to find ways of connecting with others by looking at the experiences that we've had in the past, which is, like I said, both a good thing or a bad thing. Okay. And so we like to go to things that we're used to and we like, but does that mean that we also then stay away from things that we don't like or dislike? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. The brain has, it's a tilt that we all naturally have that none of us can get away from. The brain is five times more primed to look for threats than it is to look for rewards. 
And so if it's something that feels foreign, where we don't really have a good read on whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, our brain is five times more primed to look for a threat than it is to look for a reward. So if you were to look at it from a diversity and inclusion perspective, if I don't understand who you are, if I have no knowledge of what your background is, instead of the brain thinking, oh, that's interesting, maybe I can uh, gain some advantage from it. Our brain instead is naturally prone to say, hmm, I don't know that I should trust someone who's so different from me. I don't know that that person may have something that it's helpful to me. So that kind of gives you a general structure of how our brain works. And as much as we like to think that we are sophisticated beings, and we are, <laughs> unfortunately, we're very much still reliant on uh, those same very animal instincts that uh, formed us and that have driven us from the inception of our species. Sure. So what are some of the most common biases that individuals and teams have? Oh, that's really interesting. It really depends on uh, situations, but research that I've done over the past 10 years kind of points to different ways in which people manifest their biases according to different situations. The most common biases that you will find in the workplace, which I guess is uh, what we're talking about, are pattern biases, social biases, action, attachment biases, and affinity biases. Do you want me to talk a little bit more about them? Yeah, maybe define each one of those if you could. Okay, yeah, sure. Pattern biases are very much connected to what our brain recognizes that it's seen before. And they can manifest themselves in two different ways. Either saliency biases, i.e., this is something that it's really stuck in my brain. It's happened to me several times, and it comes top of mind when I'm in a certain situation. Think, for example, if you have had a, a trauma skiing and uh, skiing feels really daunting to you, the saliency bias is, this is dangerous, I'm not going to do it. That's a natural response that our brain is. Or, for example, we may consider an event that happened recently and give it more way than, say, something that has happened more consistently over an extended period of time. So we may dismiss the fact that something opposite to what we have experienced recently has happened a number of times, and we may instead consider one episode that happened very recently and give that more weight in uh, our decision-making. The other type of bias is the confirmation bias. We all have it. Think of when you buy a new car and you then start seeing all the same cars similar to yours all of a sudden. And it feels like everyone is buying the same car that you bought. <laughs> That's obviously not the case. <laughs> What's the case is that because we are now seeing something that we care about and that matters a lot, then uh, the confirmation bias is that, see, everyone is buying the same car. I've made the right choice. That's a confirmation bias. Social biases are connected instead with how we come together as groups. And they can manifest themselves in work settings, usually in two ways. One is kind of the so-called sunflower effect. If you're in a room and the boss is the first one to speak, 
then it's more likely that everyone is going to agree because guess what? That's the boss and no one is going to contradict the boss. Or it could be in the form of uh, consensus-seeking biases, where people are essentially only going to make a decision that it's going to be endorsed if everyone in the room agrees that that's the right solution. Action attachment biases are kind of antithetical a little bit. Do you like, for example, gadget, tech gadgets? Sure. Sure. Many of us do, right? If you're like me, when you get a new tech toy, you just want to play with it right away. You're not going to read the instructions. <laughs> right. Halfway through using it, you may be breaking it, or you may have to go and look at the manual, and it feels really painful because you just want to get going. Well, that's action bias. It's essentially the desire that we have to just get going and not to spend enough time reflecting on what we're being asked to do. Attachment biases are the opposite. We are attached to a past and anything that gets in the way that's new, that can offer maybe an alternative solution, will feel like, why should we do this? So if you get the person that says, it's not broken, why fix it? That's a kind of an attachment bias. It's the idea that we get stuck with the sense that what's tried and tested works, why run risks? The last bias is the affinity bias. And the affinity bias kind of borrows from a couple of the other biases in that we look for things that feel familiar and that feel recognizable. And so whenever we are working with others, if they have similar thoughts to us, then we're more likely to want to work with them, if that makes sense. Right. Okay. And... I was going to go on to another question, but this is so intriguing. So do people overcome these biases or do we just all learn to live with them in our own way? (laughs) That's a great question. Well, you can definitely overcome biases. And so that's the good news. The bad news is that we can never be completely devoid of biases. It's just part of the human condition. We all have them and we all experience them in different ways. And so according to where you're at in your journey in life, you may be experiencing certain biases versus others. So there are ways to manage it. And the first thing to do is to recognize that we all have them and kind of figuring out what are the ones that I am more likely to have. So Having a good rubric that tells you what are the most common biases and then uh, sort of testing for that, it's a great way to go. That was Joe Carella, Professor of Global Strategy and Assistant Dean for Executive Education at the Eller College of Management at the University of Arizona. As I previously mentioned, this was part one of my interview with Joe. The second part will be available in two weeks on December 17th, so please tune in then. Without the support of our sponsors, the WNET and PaySafe, we wouldn't be able to bring you this special series. Join the WNET and executive coach Elizabeth Lyons on December the 16th for a special webinar, Three Ways to Create Hope and Resilience for Your Team. She will explore how to lead with hope and end this difficult year stronger. By examining real-life situations, Elizabeth will help you navigate through the end of this year and beyond with strategies for a better, more resilient work environment. Register at wnetonline.org on their events page. 
And PaySafe invites you to learn more about PaySafe, their offerings, international culture, and unique team by visiting PaySafe.com. To learn more about the entire Diversity and Inclusion series, visit LeadersInPayments.com.